0: Well, listeners, it's been quite a while since Danny and I said hello. Welcome to Film Is Lit, the podcast where we compare and contrast a piece of literature and it's to its film and television adaptation. I'm your co-host, Laura Sheher, and I'm the literature expert.
1: And my name is Danny He-Him, the film expert.
0: Self-appointed for both of us. Yes. <laughs>
1: But some say that we've got the goods.
0: <laughs> Our moms,
1: <Yes>. I think. <laughs> and dads.
0: And dads. Does your dad have a, a phone that he can stream podcasts through?
1: I mean, he has a phone.
0: <laughs> Someday he'll retire maybe and he'll listen to all of them.
1: This is the season six finale and we've got a banger of an episode. Just kidding. This is going to be a little bit of a downer. Of an episode.
0: Yeah, I think this is going to be an interesting conversation. We're going to cover The Underground Railroad, book by Colson Whitehead, directed by Barry Jenkins. The show. The show. When and did the book come out? The book came out in 2016, and the show was, I think it originally started in 2021?
1: Yeah, correct. Is that
0: right? Okay, yeah, last year. Last year. So... I heard a lot about the show and a lot about the book but I did not watch or read either of them until we decided to cover it for this podcast and I think we just were interested in it because of Barry Jenkins
1: yeah no I was interested in both the concept of taking the Underground Railroad and making it literal we're huge Barry Jenkins heads we've seen two of his films that Mm -hmm. he's made Moonlight which was not his first film he made films before that but I have we have not seen those. Mm-hmm. And Moonlight, which won Best Picture, uh, well-deserved. Mm-hmm. That's one of the best, Best Picture winners ever. And then also, If Bale Street Could Talk, which we covered on this podcast, which was not nominated for Best Picture. We, we had a whole yeah. rant about that. How that was <laughs> it's, a...
0: it's in my t- top 10 favorite films. And if we have to remind listeners, we were lucky enough to see Barry Jenkins and Nicholas Bertel speak before seeing it at the Arrow, which was... Quite a treat. Yeah. I don't know if we'll be raving about his latest project, but
1: No. We'll be doing the opposite of that. As
0: a I I think that he fixed some of the issues that I personally had with the book, but I'm not sure that I think it's created
1: his own issues. Yeah.
0: Maybe it's not it did it's not a perfect piece.
1: Oh, it's far from it. And I wanna state (laughs) a few things right up top. First thing I'll state is that we are not contrarians. We usually go with the flow, uh, the status quo, if, if you will, in turn, with books and movies. Laura here is usually the, the hot take meister. Our criticisms of both the book and the series in this episode, we hope that we explain them thoroughly mm-hmm. and that at the end of the day it's just our opinions yeah um
0: we we aren't experts in reality right yes we're Um, just two
1: doofuses who like books and movies mm -hmm. i only really like movies laura's the book person (laughs) um the next thing i'll say is that we both recognize the importance of the book and the show Especially the show, because it's more widely consumed, although all the credit goes to Colson Whitehead for creating the story and for doing the research. As a historical text, this is certainly very important and educational. I mean, especially for white people, like from an educational standpoint, at least for me, I am happy that I both read the book And watch the series. The third thing I'll say is that Laura and I aren't idiots. We know that the book and the show aren't meant to be enjoyed. Like, Mm. this isn't entertainment. This Mm. is the farthest thing from it. That being said, we still think, even though we recognize the importance of the pieces and what it's trying to do, we still had a tough time reading and watching the show. I think this whole process from start to finish to get to this very episode, two months. Mm -hmm. It took me a month to listen to the book and a month, a full month, 31 days (laughs) to watch the show. It was real tough, especially with our viewing habits. Mm -hmm. We usually watch stuff after work when I come home from work and these episodes are just too long to do that on a Monday through Thursday.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I wanted to add, yeah, just my two cents. So I want to particularly commend both Colson Whitehead and Barry Jenkins for the stylistic approach to the book and the movie. I think that we can talk about the technical aspects maybe a little bit later, but very, I almost want to say avant-garde in the stylistic sense so I, I truly commend the approach to this subject matter that's very different than a lot of slavery narratives from the past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not only are these episodes long in length, I think, you know, two our, I don't know, fault or, or what how to sort of frame it, but after a long day of work, watching a very intense episodic, opus about slavery was also just very mentally taxing. Yeah. (laughs) And I I can fully take responsibility for how ironic that sounds. Because obviously, you know, we get paid for what we do every day. And Mm -hmm. the whole point, I think that Barry Jenkins is trying to make, especially with the show is that there was no break for slavery. And there still isn't a break in a lot of experiences for minorities that have been framed and will be framed in the future by slavery. So I fully understand the irony of us coming home and saying, you know what, I can't put this on my plate tonight. Yeah. And that extended the recording time, because we wanted to wrap up season six quite a while ago, especially because as we've mentioned a few times, we're going into the final preparatory stages of our wedding, which is in almost exactly a month so that's why we're trying to wrap up this this series of episodes so i guess what i'm just trying to say is like we fully understand that maybe we got a little bit out of our depth with this episode to begin with because we thought this was going to be sort of a quick one and done in a week sort of situations and it was a lot it was a lot emotionally and it was time consuming and it just took us a lot of time to process this whole this whole piece
1: yes you can admire something while also not liking it at all, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I,
0: I almost, I like now that we we've talked about this. I wonder if I kind of can liken this to my experience of 2001: A Space Odyssey because yeah, I mean. I've, I've watched that movie twice now, and I still just like it's just inaccessible to me. I think for very different reasons, obviously. Yes. But it's it's such a I hesitate to call it a slog, but
1: no, I, I it's totally a lot. I totally get that when I love 2001: A Space Odyssey, but I don't. Take it personally, like when you say you don't like Pulp Fiction or something like that. That gets my blood boiling. But 2001 A Space Odyssey is a vibe movie. And if you're not on the wavelength, then it's like almost impossible to watch. Mm -hmm. Like you got to be in it. And for me, when I am in it there's like, it's like, there's nothing better than watching it, but I I totally get it. So I think the book and the movie are the same way. So yeah, let's get uh, with that all out of the way. Let's get into the, the analysis. So lore, do you want to do the quick uh, kind of synopsis of the story?
0: Sure. So I'm going to credit Wikipedia with this summary.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to tell the listeners that. They're so succinct.
0: No, I do have to cite my sources though. I can't say that I wrote this by myself. They're so succinct that I I wouldn't be able to write my own like this. So the alternate history novel tells the story of Cora and Caesar, two slaves in the Antebellum South during the 19th century, who make a bid for freedom from their Georgia plantation by following the Underground Railroad, which the novel depicts as a rail transport system with safe houses and secret routes. Physically, Underground Railroad. So that's the book and the show. There's really no uh, deviations from that summary.
1: So yeah, personal journey with it. Um, Go ahead.
0: I don't have any. I I think I kind of covered it in our preamble, but I remember when this came out because I was in England. I was studying abroad in 2015, 2016. I just remember seeing it everywhere. Mm -hmm. It was in all the bookshops. And I remember the cover which I thought was really compelling, but I didn't pick it up for whatever reason. I've Mm -hmm. had it on my bookshelf probably since then. I don't remember when I got it, but I've had it for a long time and I just never got around to it. I was excited when Barry Jenkins was announced as the director, but then other than that, I hadn't waded into the content.
1: That's, uh, that's interesting. I, for my journey, I feel like I've said this a few times. It all started with my mom talking about it. As soon as this book came out in 2016, I remember my mom told me the premise, and I was I was intrigued by it. I thought that was cool. It was a cool way to talk about this part of history, slavery, and that I've you know seen it before in something like Roots, but it had this new supernatural, metaphysical mm-hmm. element to it. So it was intriguing. wasn't a reader back then, as I've also said before. I'm happy that I finally got a chance to quench this thirst i've had to read something new like that and of course were barry jenkins heads so uh, i wanted to watch it as well i'm, I'm a huge fan of barry jenkins's cinematographer james laxton who shot all his films
0: definitely he
1: was nominated for his work on moonlight wasn't nominated for beale street for some reason
0: i don't Again, understand another that. one of
1: the egregious snubs but he won basically the independent spirit award for cinematography for this show so that's kind of like the television oscar for the Mm -hmm. next to the emmys of course the series was was nominated for seven emmys didn't win any because it was up against the queen's gambit and that kind of swept
0: which is so interesting uh, that that
1: really swept yeah the uh, limited this technically counts as a limited series even though it's Almost 10 hours, which is about ah, the length.
0: I didn't even do the math of yeah. that. Wow.
1: It's ten episodes, and each episode is about an hour or more, save for the seventh episode, which is only twenty minutes. So it averages mm-hmm. out, yeah, to almost about ten hours. So it, even though it's a limited series, it's almost the same length as a full series. Limited series are usually like six to seven episodes that are forty-five minutes to an hour each. So
0: what would Watchmen be considered?
1: Watchmen's limited.
0: Limited. Yeah. Do you know how many hours that ran? In that person?
1: that was, I believe, eight eight hours because it had nine episodes that were about like fifty minutes mm-hmm. each, which is like perfect. That's that. We'll get to our opinion on the show, but it's just the show is too long. So yeah, I listened to the book via audiobook, and just like last of The Mohicans, this book uh, for this episode, it's not a book that you can just casually listen to because the style of writing is very poetic which I guess Colson Whitehead's diction is interesting to read.
0: I love that you just used the word diction. Mm -hmm. Continue.
1: Um, However for me personally the style of writing it removed any and all Tension, any immediacy mm-hmm. to the story it very much is written to be like a dream kind mm-hmm. of very flowy and it's dealing with some you know the darkest moments in american history but it's not an a to b type plot i so i could not engage with it at all i just thought it, it in the audio medium it's damn near impossible to pay attention because like things will happen and you won't know like who the people are and then then Colson Whitehead will go back in time and explain the whole backstory and you're like so it keeps on doing this where it jumps Mm -hmm. and I was lost in I was completely in the weeds on this one where I'm like where am I where is this going and then as what we can dive into now the story even though it puts the underground railroad into a literal sense it brings it into the real world you're not supposed to view cora as an actual character at mm-hmm. least in the book she is a representation of all the horrors committed against slaves and, and black people during the times of slavery in america so yeah. yeah
0: and i think that that highlights exactly why colson whitehead's writing is avant-garde because I read a couple of reviews that talk specifically about how and in an interview with him where he talks about how slave narratives have almost become boxed in by this kind of style that is very A to B. Yeah. B to C, C to D, you know, how did this one slave escape to either freedom or not, mm-hmm. right? Or unfor- you know, to their demise in some way. And I think I understand where that is coming from. And in, in a lot of ways, I don't feel like my opinion really means anything, because if that speaks to someone, that's really important. Yeah. But when you're talking about taking away the immediacy of the story, I think that's really where the book lost me, because I felt out of touch with Cora, And unfortunately, that kind of broke my ability to relate with what was going on. Mm-hmm and it made me feel lost and i think that's again something that's really commendable about this kind of writing because you're right it is talking about that generational sort of repeat of a story you can't escape that dreamlike cycle yeah i can i mean i've said this so many times i'm not a writer who am i to be criticizing this work i just as a consumer it just made me feel frustrated to not be able to get to know this main character. I, I'm not. Re- I guess you're not really supposed to relate to her. But the philosophical uh, treatment of her thoughts made me feel like I just couldn't couldn't understand the person who was going through these right. things.
1: Which is the biggest triumph of the show is that they make Cora into an actual character yes, in yes. the performance by Thuso. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Mabeddu? Thuso Mabedu. She also won an Independent Spirit Award for her performance um, in the show.
0: I want to highlight the casting of the entire show because I think you're right. I think they really nailed it on Caesar... Cora, Cora's mother, Mabel, my goodness, mm-hmm. she was an, an incredible pick for this role.
1: Casting by Francine Meisler, who was nominated for an Emmy, but did not win.
0: Chase Dillon. Yeah. Oh my goodness. His, I mean, does he have in 10 hours, does he have five lines? I'm not sure yeah. he has five <laughs> lines, but just an entrancing performance by this young actor who's probably 10. hmm Honestly, Joel Edgerton oh, was terrifying. Joel Edgerton
1: is one of my favorite actors out there. And He's incredible. His
0: everybody's accent, their southern accents were a spot on. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if we talked about Tussauds Mbedu is originally from South Africa. Her accent was flawless. Mm-hmm. I think Joel Edgerton, is he from England? Australia. Oh, Australia. Okay, so his his Southern accent was flawless.
1: And even in the uh, the Great Spirit episode, the young Ridgeway, the actor Fred Hetchinger who mm -hmm. played him, he even sounded like Joel Edgerton, which I guess is the yeah, which I guess is the point. Um, But his voice sounded so similar to Joel Edgerton's. It's like wow, that is. He even looks a little bit like Joel Edgerton. I mean, that that's textbook. Casting. so yeah the show big strength is its cast uh william jackson harper who plays royal uh, fr- uh our boy from <gasps> Yeah, from, from the good, good place. place yeah
0: oh. If you haven't incredible. watched that show, go uh, consume it in a night. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so
1: he's good. he's incredible as well. So the book, the style of writing, it's a big reason why I don't like Adam McKay films or a lot of Spike Lee films is because mm. they feel like lectures. Yeah, They feel like pointed lectures. And a lot of times I agree with them. Like I, I would never disagree with the film, like what Adam McKay is saying in Vice or Don't Look Up, which I liked Don't Look Up, but also... Spike Lee's one of his latest films, *The Five Bloods*, that had moments where they would stop the film completely and show literal powerpoint slides and like explaining it and that's kind of like the book itself there there was a story but then it would everything would come to a halt and there'd be just pages upon pages of explaining like what was going on in a historical context and again very informative but i felt like i was back at school in college reading a textbook and i i couldn't engage with it at all
0: cool coincidentally, I'm reading a book called Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And I think it really highlighted for me why I don't like history lessons in the form of historical fiction. I tend to be a lover of nonfiction, Mm -hmm. um, with the exception of some novels, but that are not necessarily historical fiction. I get very frustrated with historical fiction because I can't tell what's true and what's not true. And this is, I've I've said this, I think, on the podcast before about biopics. Mm -hmm. Um, It really frustrates me when I can't penetrate what's fact and what's fiction. Right. I think that this book is trying to walk that line of like being a teaching mechanism and also trying to humanize the experience of the American slave. And unfortunately, I just don't feel like it checks both of those boxes. Like maybe it was trying to do too much because a lot of the times when there was like specific like abolitionist characters that were sort of injected into the storyline, it kind of came off as a like a caricature of Mm. those people. And I was like, then in my mind, like, what happens is I'm like, was that person really there? Like, I I don't understand the mechanics. Like, if that's not true, don't tell it to me, because then I'm not actually learning something. I'm just sort of seeing like a an allegory. And I'm not learning as much from that. And to me, I'd rather just read cast, which is also an extremely illuminating book. I, I it's taken me a couple months to even get through that because I feel like every single line has this like incredible significance. But to me, it's like that doesn't even have a main character because it's a nonfiction book. Mm. But I still can emotionally connect more effectively with the anecdotes that are shared in Wilkerson's writing. And with Cora, it's just like, I lose that emotional realness. I get a little bit fatigued by listening to her try to like share her thoughts because i'm just like i don't believe you as a character i, I don't know oh
1: well, no no i that's perfectly yeah. don't second guess yourself at all
0: i know but i'm just i'm trying to she's
1: she's not a character in the book
0: right i'm, I'm trying to acknowledge the style while also explaining why it doesn't work for me
1: for us we're getting married remember <laughs> sure. yeah i mean that, those are my exact thoughts in addition to core not being a character in the book you think escaping a plantation as a slave that's like the ultimate stakes right because if you are captured you're not just returned you're not just killed You're tortured and killed in the worst possible way. In the book, it opens with a slave being returned uh, after running away, and they cut off his genitals, stuff it in his mouth, and then burn him alive. In the show, it's just burning him alive. It's still horrifying, but that's the stakes there. And when you add a metaphysical kind of supernatural element, I thought, oh, okay, what... What the novel's gonna do is it's gonna open with a little tease of the Underground Railroad and then we'll get, you know, the introductions and then we'll get back to it. The book opens with, the book opens with Ajari and then Mabel and then finally Cora. and you're already like two hours into the audiobook and you're like, where's the Underground Railroad? Again, I wasn't expecting it to be this fun sci-fi ride, but... The fact that we were like two hours into the book, no mention of the Underground Railroad. I'm like, oh, wow. okay, so I guess this truly is an allegory. Like the whole point I thought was to make it literal, but really
0: exactly the opposite.
1: Right. I I think in the book, I'm not exaggerating. There there was probably like 12 to 14 pages in this 300 plus page book where they actually talk about trains and uh, and, in underground it's
0: interesting now that you're starting to unfold your thoughts about this it's almost an exercise in breaking expectations because i think the title and the marketing around the book is to set up the expectation that it's going to be slightly, it's going to be historical fiction, but it's going to have that twist that the Underground Railroad is physical. Yeah. And the fact that the Underground Railroad is barely in this novel, and even really in the show, is such a subversion that I'm not sure if it's successful or if it's such a subversion that I'm left feeling a little bit like, what's the point then Mm -hmm. does that make sense
1: yeah it's it's a subversion but it's not one that as a reader i fully appreciated i mean colson whitehead's larger point is that listen the the underground railroad was not an immediate uh you're free pass for slaves yes in fact just the opposite i think his his point is that even if you find the secret entrances to the underground railroad it it was it didn't secure anything in fact it it put your life in in more danger and i think we view the underground railroad as this great it was a great thing obviously Mm. however I don't think Colson Whitehead believes or thinks that the public knows truly how tumultuous and horrifying it was for slaves.
0: I think that you've hit on something really important. In my interpretation, this book and show reframe freedom in the sense that you're right. When you come across these secret entrances or these people who are, quote unquote, allies, there's so much systematic racism and and i'm not even sure if racism is a an appropriate enough word to encapsulate the systematic torture of a certain people that every minute is a struggle and i think that's that's perpetuated by every single win we think cora is achieving yes and she can't make it and i think like the whole point of the last episode when her and molly which is I kind of like the only survivor of the Valentine farm massacre when they get picked up by another traveler. It's not a promise that they're going to get to California. And even if they do make it across the country to California, there are still yeah. systematic laws that could send them right back to Georgia to the Randall yeah. plantation. Cora so is
1: still a fugitive.
0: I think that's, that is the point. And I think it's that idea of reframing the future of runaway slaves that is important. This is a concept that Isabel Wilkerson so brilliantly discusses in Cast, because she talks about how as a society, as any society, likes to define racism as like a single act or a single racist person but the problem with that theory is that if we point a finger and fire that person or censure that person or that act that the racism is gone and the people who pointed the finger are then quote unquote not racist the problem with that approach to racism is that it's so integral to the american psyche that it absolves the responsibility of those people who pointed the finger and that's not that's not the way to root out racism it's it's the taking of responsibility that can root out racism. Mm-hmm. And it's well. it's that persistent taking of responsibility because the American system was set up in this time of, of such systematic torture. So again, in that way, it's so interesting to take this stance that like it doesn't matter. Even the white people who help Cora escape certain situations are still extremely racist. You know, for example, the the wife... Ethel. Ethel, thank you, who still has this very sick idea of possession mm-hmm. over Cora. And that that relationship is slightly different in the show and the book, but it's that idea of possession over other humans that is so pervasive. Yeah. So it's just I, I think in that way the show is a little bit more successful at like humanizing those sick morals that continue into today sorry that was sort of a long conversation no
1: let's get into the show but before we do that you had mentioned the ending very quickly we should state that the ending of the show differs slightly from the book so in the book Cora escapes on her own uh, by herself without Molly and she arrives in what we're supposed to interpret as Canada and comes across people who are not they're not migrating anywhere she she meets local canadians and so like she is definitively out of america in hands of people who don't are not hunting her down and then uh the show as you stated it's not a happy ending in the traditional sense like she's still in america she's still traveling which makes her vulnerable mm-hmm. just to be out in the open in a carriage i mean just traveling alone during those times anything could kill you it's like the oregon trail mm-hmm. <laughs> funny cuz they were going that way mm-hmm. uh, so yeah i think the the point that the underground railroad was not a your free pass ticket (laughs) ticket right i'm surprised i didn't think of that pun wow Uh, it is stronger in the show so let's get into the show so overall thoughts of the show lore go ahead
0: i mean first thought into my mind too long um yeah (laughs) second thought cinematography is beautiful oh yeah Third thought, casting, chef's kiss. Nicholas bretel composed the score.
1: Our boy.
0: And I wasn't in love with Whoa. it as much as I am with If Beale Street Could Talk or Moonlight.
1: I mean, yeah, it doesn't hold a candle to those two scores, but I think it's still pretty... It's
0: still great. Yeah. But where it really succeeds. Again, I just want to talk about the cinematography. We talked about this in If Beale Street Could Talk Specifically. I think if I had done the research that I did around that episode, I would have appreciated it more in Moonlight as well.
1: James Laxon uses the same anamorphic lens that, you know, kind of blurs out the sides to make a vignette as uh, Roger Deakins. Mm. Yeah, Roger Deakins created a lens in 2006 when he shot the assassination of Jesse James. I
0: still haven't seen that.
1: Yeah, so he uses the exact same lens.
0: It's so effective when we talk about humanization of black Americans during this time and during the the 70s, kind of, when If Beale Street Could Talk is set, because there's a post-credit scene that I think, I don't know, I would love to interview Barry Jenkins about the function of that post credit sequence. It's not really a scene. It's a sequence.
1: I have a fun fact for you.
0: Oh, okay. Okay, perfect. So that was one of the most powerful. ironically, that was one of the most powerful mechanisms throughout the whole show, when there are these very prolonged establishing shots
1: yeah of
0: yeah of of slaves in a cotton field or freed people or freemen people who were born free basically like on the valentine farm black people in the city yeah
1: in every episode yeah yeah,
0: every episode there are these establishing shots of barreling the camera intentionally to humanize and normalize the idea that black people not only existed but had the right to exist in these roles that have not been historically respected um this idea that people who black people who didn't fit the like in the box of white people's expectations didn't deserve to have that role so those establishing shots were extremely powerful for me
1: yeah i'll tee up my fun fact so the shoot for the show it was around seven months it was an extensive hardcore shoot like shooting you know, sixteen-hour days. They're shooting in Atlanta area. They also shot down in Louisiana for a lot of the um, Randall plantation scenes. So yeah, moments are punctuated by these establishing shots of slaves or or freed African Americans standing still, looking into camera, staring down, gazing. Every
0: age, every yes. gender. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Scenes will just be. Intercut. Uh, intercut spliced with these here and it really sets the tone so barry jenkins shot so much footage of actors extras main characters doing the stare that he released a 55 minute film on vimeo called the gaze
0: oh wow yeah
1: g-a-z-e that's just The whole 55 minutes is just all the shots, all these establishing shots uh, of all the locations. It's on, I'm pulling it up now. Yeah, so everything you see in the show and more, all those shots and Nicholas Brattel's score is over it. The whole short film and you can scroll through. So yeah, of course it contains all the shots he put in the show, but also a lot that he didn't. And he's saying that like, yeah, these people were a part of history and they are they are watching, like they're watching, like let's not...
0: History has its eyes on you exactly as, as Lynn manuel Miranda yeah, wrote so for Hamilton.
1: I definitely recommend that. Yeah, it was powerful at the end there. My thoughts on the show. So I agree with you. It feels very much like an extended director's cut Mm. meaning that it feels like everything that was shot was put in the show which it's not a shame but it's so i would say it's bizarre because you have these incredible elements like the acting the directing obviously is strong i
0: think the writing is pretty strong oh yeah the writing the adaptation is Mm -hmm. and colson whitehead is credited as a writer
1: right as a writer and executive producer Mm -hmm. he had a lot of say in the show
0: and he was happy with the final product Uh, yes
1: he was so the episodes were just it's not that they were too long there was so much negative space and empty moments or silent moments that were excruciatingly drawn out to the point where i just It's not unwatchable, but it is very difficult to even get through one episode in one sitting. You agree? Oh, yeah. Like, episode five is the episode where they go through Tennessee, which is, Mm -hmm. like, the most excruciating, tough-to-watch episode of television I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And, again that's the point like mm-hmm. that's how it was however the episode is is almost feature length and it's just too much and even at the end of the series Cora escapes right and then she has that scene where she plants the uh the seeds that she that her like birthright and just her digging a hole in the ground and pouring the seeds in is 15 minutes. I'm not exaggerating, you can go watch the final episode now if you want, but everything is extended, everything is as slow as it possibly could be, and I think just the editing is a huge downfall for me. I mean, with this dark of source material, I'm not saying make it all happy-go-lucky, cheery, like add more happy elements to it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying maybe don't make this thing 10 hours. (laughs) Maybe it's a little too much because the human mind can only take so much horror at once. And something like, say, I'm not comparing the two tragedies here, but something like Schindler's List, right? That's a three-hour film. That is a tough sit. But it is just three hours. Where We're pictured the Underground Railroad, which is similarly the worst possible things you could watch humans do to other humans. And to have that be more than three times the length of Schindler's... Lit, like, that is... It is really tough.
0: I think that we're... We're dancing around a concept that I wrote down a couple times that I don't want to introduce slightly into our episode, but it's something that I kind of want to ask you about, and I'd be interested to have, like, a larger conversation with people who've watched this. But what I wrote down a couple times in terms of the whole book and show is trauma porn, and this is sort of a new concept in art criticism that talks about how people have become so buffered from real trauma in the world that there's been a sudden uptick in such violence of situations that it starts to unfortunately sort of contribute to the reaction of like shutting down and not being able to process what's going on and yeah. and that that idea of porn is like it's so graphic that it's just like not it's almost not given like the respect that it deserves and it's tough to have this conversation in conjunction with slavery and yes. the, the black <laughs> plight in America because it is important for people to continuously come to terms with the fact that America is built on these systematic prejudicial ideas But for example, when I finally got to the end of the book and we find out that Cora's mother Mabel was killed by a snake like 15 meters away from the plantation line, I was so fatigued by this situational trauma that I was just like, are you kidding me? And and that, the reaction that I had to Mabel's death was so almost cold-hearted where I was just like you've got to be kidding me you know we, mm. we can't have a glimmer of hope at all um, that's where I started to be concerned that I I was shutting off and and I, I understand that it's really important to give respect to the people where like this was their reality mm-hmm. um, and this is their reality but something that I think is really successful in not only get out but also watchmen, is that we do give a future. We give hope to the future generations.
1: Watch when the show, you mean Watching the show, yeah. yes.
0: That I started to feel like just so fatigued that I I felt like I couldn't it was it wasn't accessible for me to empathize with the characters. I personally think that. You know, maybe that that's that's a personal flaw in me that I was so fatigued and I can't see that that's, you know, well, accessible. But but that's just how I started to feel. And I think that's that sucks. Like, that, no, that's I,
1: no, I, no, I, that's not a flaw. That's not a flaw. No, I feel the same way. It's not calling it porn doesn't feel
0: well, it's a, right. It's
1: a, I, I would say overload. I think you use that word. I like trauma overload.
0: It's a yeah, it's yeah, a literary I criticism. I know. Like I, I'm not. I didn't coin that word. Gotcha. That's That's out there in the vernacular gotcha. of like art yes. Criticism. Twitter,
1: please do not cancel Laura. Cancel but I'm kidding. Uh, uh, it's, but
0: you can read. Yeah, yes. it's plenty of artistic criticisms. But,
1: um. No, I, I I do feel the the overload of it. It's funny that you mentioned the Maybell part. I, we talked about this off mic. That actually was my favorite part of the book at least because i think that is a subversion of expectations that actually works in kind of a, a, the reader's favor it speaks to a larger very human instinct to base one's entire belief or a entire belief on something that's incorrect so Mm -hmm. a big part of the the book the the
0: idea of the story rather than the idea of realism yeah
1: yeah, exactly so this is a large part of the book and there's only one scene in the in the show that speaks to this but in the book Cora has a deep-seated hatred for uh, her mom for leaving her at the Randall plantation when she mm-hmm. was young uh, when she was eight and escaping without her and the whole book she talks about how mad she is at her mom and how when she finally sees her when she escapes through the underground railroad how she's going to reprimand her and uh, tell her how, how she feels mm. and that that's a big part of her character that's really the only bit of character development Cora has in the book yeah so to find out that this entire belief was false because Mabel, in fact, died not even a mile away. She doesn't even the...
0: really make a bit of escape. She She's so overwhelmed by a situation that happens in the show, not the novel, right. that she honestly just needs like some space. Yeah. And so it's not even an escape attempt. It's it's just being overwhelmed.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I think that works for both the book and the movie. I, I really appreciate that and it i when i th- listened to that i remember like oh that's that's clever i think because you can apply that belief to you know any other thing like politics religion some people base their whole viewpoints on something that is Wrong or incorrect or skewed, and if they had, if they could only literally see the reality of what happened, that would change their minds. But mm-hmm. people don't. They're blinded either by ego or by not being there or by other, you know, other prejudices that they grew up with. You know, it, it's it speaks to a larger thing, and I think that's very profound. But going to the overload part of it, yeah, the show was too much, and the Tennessee episode especially broke me. Two episodes before that, when they were in North Carolina. That is also harrowing. I had no idea about North Carolina's past and how, you know...
0: Oh, you haven't heard me talk about how much I hate... No. ...the southern states for not taking responsibility for Uh, their horrific racism past?
1: The point is, is that it's a lot for anyone. So let's get into some of the big differences between the book and the movie. So let's... Speaking of North Carolina, there was episode three so in the book she is taken in by this family ethel and martin and she spends over half a year up in their cramped attic now in the show they add a younger character grace who's also up Mm -hmm. there
0: i saw a review likening this episode to anne frank which i thought was really insightful i didn't think about that when i was watching it i don't know how i missed that but that's really that's an apt comparison
1: of course it makes the episode even more depressing at the end when the house catches on fire and you think that grace is a goner now there is a whole uh, that 20 minute episode we are talking about uh, fanny briggs so that details her escape from the burning building and to her finding the underground railroad now question
0: Do you think that that really happened? Yeah. Is that your question? That's
1: my question. It's filmed, it's clearly different than the other episodes in that A, it's shorter, but B, it it feels most like a dream, which is funny because in the next episode, there is a dream sequence. Right. But fan, the Fanny Briggs episode is not presented as this is a dream. It's filmed like it's a dream, but you're not being told what it whether it's real or not. Mm-hmm. And so here's the thing my answer is that I don't know. (laughs) I know that's a cop-out However, you have two contradictory things going on here. You were shown explicitly that the house is burning down and that everyone in North Carolina as soon as they saw a black person they would kill them. Now in this episode you're not you have no indication that it's supposed to be a dream up until the point where Grace so easily finds the Underground Railroad. It's like, wait a second. And there
0: happens to be an engine there Right, right there. Because Cora's struggle consistently is that she can find the rails, but she can't find a train.
1: Right. And yeah. then there's someone who says like, oh, we've been waiting for you. And it's like very right. mystical and almost eerie. Um, and then in the very next episode, there's a dream sequence that has the same tone, which is very mystical, but unsettling. Yeah. And it's like, it's what's going on is good (laughs) that Grace is escaping and has found the train, but is she alive? Hmm.
0: Right. This goes into my concern about this flirting with trauma porn, because my interpretation of this episode is that it's not real. Mm -hmm. It's Fanny's transition into quote-unquote heaven. And another reason that I find myself leaning toward that interpretation is because there are so many interactions, or I guess not interactions, but so many scenes where, for example, Caesar is sort of transitioning into that space, that that afterlife space, Mm -hmm. through the Underground Railroad. Right. Right cora has an interaction with him that's clearly a dream yeah and i think that that's supposed to signify a portal a transitional portal yeah now that also starts to make you wonder is cora's plight through the show sort of a dream or is she transitioning into the afterlife Mm. because there are a couple establishing shots like we talked about earlier of slaves in different scenarios one of or actually a few of which are in a cotton field and not only is Cora's mother included in those shots but so is Cora and Cora is also included in the Valentine establishing shot that's Mm -hmm. sort of heavily
1: Implying, implying that they're all gonna die that they're all gonna die <laughs> yeah,
0: so but I think that that's also because the ambiguity goes back to Colson Whitehead's original text that says that this is a cycle and Cora is not necessarily supposed to be a certain person she's supposed to be representative of all of these traumatic storylines. hmm so it's really hard for me to pin down where reality begins and ends, which is the point. So in that way it's successful, but on the other hand, it's 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 a little bit hard to to access.
1: I will say this, I'm glad in the show the trains were not a footnote okay mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying I wanted a whole episode of just them on the train I, but, but I'm glad that it was an actual part of the story you know I I, I well, know it's, it's not It's supposed such to be a literal.
0: tantalizingly interesting yeah, concept' it's, cool. And I, it's I, really cool it's really cool and actually this sort of hits on an idea that I think the book flirts with that I think the show it's so close to bringing into full fruition that Cora sort of that traditional you know the narrator is the chosen one sort of situation mm-hmm. because the the book almost gets there Cora is almost supposed to be a conductor mm-hmm. and the show in her dream introduces that idea that she wants to be something more and she could possibly map out, and this brings into our conversation, Royal's character, how he sort of sees Korra and he says, you've seen so much more of the Underground Railroad than like anybody I've ever met. Maybe you can map it and maybe you can document it. Because that's another huge motif yeah. is just documentation of Black people in general in American history. Yeah. There's very little. And that idea is so tantalizingly teased <laughs> that I wanted more out of that. And it it, it was like we yeah. got little, little drips of it, but we didn't right. quite get a storyline about you, it.
1: Right. Instead of getting, yeah, these plot points here, these, we get you speak of the dream sequence that was literally 27 minutes Mm -hmm. it's a dream sequence we get the idea within five minutes
0: because caesar's there and we know that caesar's died yeah
1: but caesar comes at the end but again it feels like a director's cut where everything that was filmed was put in there and let me be clear everything that was filmed is beautiful to look at It's really interesting and well made, clearly, from a production standpoint, from a visual standpoint, acting standpoint. But it is, we get the point. Move on. Let's get to the cool stuff. Let's get to the train. Again, I like that a lot. Let's move to the literal here. Let's get out of the dream sequence. Let's get out of Korra walking around. I wanted more plot. And I think that you know, something like If Beale Street Could Talk, the plot is very thin there, too. However, it's only two hours, and it is, like, that is also a vibe movie, like, figuring out. But,
0: it, but it's so deeply rooted right. in the character development. Yes,
1: yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, you're yeah. You're saying... Like,
0: that is the plot, it, is the character development.
1: Right. It is a full-on vibe, but it is one that, yes, never loses sight of its two main leads where this show is just going on for so long and while i appreciated like the prequel episode i guess you could say for ridgeway it is in a vacuum it's a good episode of television right it's well made it's only 40 minutes it's solid but in the grand scheme of the show does not serve a purpose you could say in a few lines of dialogue he does have He says later on uh, in the next episode when he's drunk in the bar with Homer, he's saying that he respects slaves who buy their freedom. Mm. So he respects African-Americans who buy their freedom. For someone to run away is cheating to him. It's analogous to, you know, illegal immigrants in America and how, you know, certain conservatives d- don't feel like they deserve to be here. It, it's kind of a one-to-one comparison there where Ridgway is, is is a stand-in for those people. He's clearly racist as well. But you, you get it through his dialogue, uh, how he feels that you don't need a whole back—the episode just— kills the pacing that's a big difference we should mention between the book and the show there is a little chapter in the book about ridgeway's past but the show expands it to two full episodes of the, i call them the great spirit episodes
0: great spirit oh yeah yeah that's...
1: where he just goes on and on about that's his whole he was raised to believe in the great spirit and he for, doesn't feel
0: it in himself and yeah. his father doesn't identify it in him and that's what he blames his hatred yeah his life's hatred on
1: so yeah that's not in the book.
0: I think it it might be it might be mentioned. It's not fleshed out. No, it it might be mentioned. I could be wrong about that. I I think it's mentioned. But speaking of Ridgway, those background episodes, I just want to highlight the actor who plays Mac, Iron Singleton, the whole situation with him when he ends up getting murdered by Homer. I think that might have been the point where the show broke me because it was so... uh, you you said that you you it was foreshadowed enough that you sort of picked up on it. I did not pick up on that, and that's where I just get concerned with the amount of trauma that's perpetuated against black bodies throughout this show. And you know this is like this is a a young white woman's criticism of this, so take it with a grain of salt. But that scene in particular was so traumatic for me personally. The way that that scene hit me was very different than anything else that hit me in this show. And um, I see that. I just wonder if it's too much. Um, there's just too much of that in this show. Yes. There's just too much.
1: I don't wonder about that, it. That's what I think.
0: I, yeah, and, and I'm not sure. Like It just makes me feel like it was written for the white gaze where it's trying so hard to prove a point about the horrendousness of this time and as it plays out into modernity that it loses it i don't i don't know if the trauma is the point or if it's like past the point where where all it's it's doing is like perpetuating those images against black bodies i'm just not sure if that's like the best way for me to learn about the system
1: well i don't think it's perpetuating against People, nor do I think it's for the white gays. I just think that we get, like anyone, I like not regardless of your race. I think what the show is putting out is you get you get the point. Again, I don't think it's like a, a perpetuating. But
0: it's images. It's images sure. of black people getting shot. I, yeah. And there's there's so much of that that I'm not sure if we need another situation. No,
1: we don't. To uh, further
0: the point. And, right. and I'm just not sure what that does to help people understand that like something needs to change. There was an article in Variety that I, th- I thought was really interesting that came out last year about black actresses in traumatic shows. And they interviewed and she said that she had to go to a therapist um, yeah. while filming this because it was so the amount traumatic to her and it's like she does again like i'm not i'm not sure if that's a criticism i'm just wondering what that does to further reframe these situations for for the modern consumer um I don't know. I don't know. That's just an open ended question. Maybe like the place where I end up as we kind of wrap up this episode is like I'm still sitting with this piece. And I don't think I'm going to forget it. My preferred intake of education is nonfiction. I would suggest to anybody listening to this to go read (laughs) anything else nonfiction. Like, I'm loving Isabel Wilkerson's writing. But there are obviously other examples to sort of educate yourself. I just don't know if this is my preferred way of intaking this kind of information.
1: Gotcha. Um, Yeah, I'm the opposite. I'm a big fiction guy. Nonfiction usually Puts me to sleep pretty mm. fast. Um, however, I would just say watch If Beale Street Could Talk if you haven't. Um, mm-hmm. That's a great way to... Or Moonlight. Oh, yes. Moonlight. I think Moonlight is more... It, it deals with the experience of African Americans. That's a big part of it. But it's more towards internalized feelings. I mean, it, it in Moonlight, he's a gay man, but the metaphor go, goes beyond that. It can be for any type of thing that you're ashamed of that you shouldn't be that you shouldn't be ashamed of that. You should like talk to people about. Yeah. Yeah. This is a tough, tough to talk about, uh, especially, you know, being two white people. It's very, we're, (laughs) we're walking a line here, but I, I hope listeners, I, that we've been respectful, yeah. It's we can't even we can't even rate this really, because we clearly I shouldn't say clearly in this, but we appreciate certain elements of what both Barry Jenkins and Colson Whitehead are doing. But it's just it's too much.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Both are, are are too much.
0: Ironically, as you say that, something that I wish I something I actually wanted more out of the book and the show was Homer. And his relationship with Ridway Definitely I wanted in the book. more expo- I wanted more exploration. I think the show gave us that a little bit yes, but I almost feel like I could have read another book about just Homer's motivations
1: have a whole episode or chapter on Homer on Homer yeah yeah I agree and the whole escape from the plantation in the beginning in the book it's like one line how Cora's like mad mad at her mom and then she's like all of a sudden escape you're like wait a second where's the setup in here so the show does that expertly the whole first episode is just the escape and I I really appreciated Mm. that so yeah I mean let's just kind of Let's just kind of end this bad boy. We- well, and
0: yeah, I mean, <laughs> gosh, this is such a an interesting note to end our season six with. Our season seven will be TBD because we are getting married, which is very exciting. Next month, we have a mini moon. We're not going on a huge break because we got to work, but we've just been so busy. We got to plan our, our next moves. Not that we're canceling the podcast. We're not going to stop. We just got to figure out how it <laughs> works into our life in a month. Because yes. we're just going to be busy. And... We're
1: getting married a month from this recording. So we plan to record another episode probably a week or so after the wedding, after our mini moon. So mm-hmm. we'll be back, listeners, in a month and a half. Something so like that. Yep. <laughs> approximately a month and a half. We say this a lot, but we'll say this again. We really appreciate everyone who listens to this podcast
0: yeah I'm glad you said that I specifically I want to say hi to Letitia um she's done a lot for our wedding she has a personal business of her as I met her in college uh if you want to look up her business she does like screen printing yeah look up her business it's called Simply Skalacky and she started listening to our podcast and she's a huge fan so I just wanted to give a little shout out since she's been very helpful for our our wedding prep so thank you Letitia
1: shout out Letitia yes yeah. thank you yeah we don't do this podcast for sponsors or for a list or you know to gain a big following we do it because we truly love comparing books to movies mm-hmm. uh and we love reading books and, and watching movies this is just fun for us to and do learning
0: about ourselves in the process yes yeah
1: yeah and having fights off mic just kidding <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not inaccurate <laughs> um, <laughs> yes but we will be back so Don't worry about us. Uh, We'll worry about us a little bit planning a wedding is a lot. (laughs) I don't know if you know this uh, for all you people. Uh, People who are married certainly know this. Um, And uh, my advice for people who want to get married in the year of 2022, um, don't. Uh, Inflation is at an all-time high. (laughs) Um, All-time high. I'm rambling at this point. What I'm trying to say is that I love this woman next to me. I Mm. hope she loves me. Do you? Yeah. And I and we love doing this podcast. So yeah, we um will be occupied for a while, but we'll come back hot and ready to ready to party. Yeah. Alrighty, well please rate, review, subscribe if you haven't already, and we'll see you on the next one.